Welcome to Constructed Futures. I'm Hugh Seaton. Today I'm here with Scott Ellison, investor and advisor to companies in the built environment. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Hugh. Really appreciate you having me. And I've, I've mentioned this before we started playing record, but I think you're doing a terrific service for what is arguably a very old industry, but a, a newer uh, sector, at least in terms of uh, context. Construction has been around for millennia and so has technology depending on how you define it but it's i think given a number of different dynamics that maybe we'll touch on during the course of the conversation i'm i'm a big believer that the next decade we'll see a number of really interesting stories created on the startup side and and in what the broader world would think of as as technology contact yeah i i think you're right and i think you know one of the things that we've discussed is the, the trajectory of this new technology in what is still, you know, a tradition-bound industry can mean that the way a construction technology, a context startup, especially in the beginning, has to kind of get off the ground, can be a little wobbly or a little bit different. What, what have you seen and what do you think about that? Yeah, I think, I'm, just for context, I think it's useful to, to, to ground us in terms of technology has been used in, in construction for decades now, right? And arguably, when some of the tools that we even have in our home, the hammer and the saw were created, that was technology too. And so I, I always want to be careful not to describe where we are in terms of the sector and in terms of technology adoption as sort of the beginning point. I think it's also fashionable to say that con tech and prop tech and built tech and old old economy sectors are two decades behind in terms of technology adoption. And I, I personally uh, don't buy that. I think there certainly are examples you could find of people still doing purchase orders via fax machine, right? So yes, that's out there. But quite frankly, that's still the case in certain doctor's offices. What I, what I do think is a relatively fair description is to say that, generally speaking, a lot of the players in contact are still on some sort of uh, primarily desktop platform or client-server platform. And so there is an opportunity. So, so you might, you know, perhaps the rule of thumb is better said as 10 years versus 20 years. And again, construction is not a monolith. You've done, for those who haven't seen some of the work that Hughes put together that drills into the, the headline numbers that everyone likes to quote from a certain consultant, I highly recommend it. But it's within those who uh, are adapting and, and looking at technology, they're coming at it now from a client-server perspective and starting to adopt mobile technology and cloud uh, infrastructure. In terms of your specific question, you know, is building a startup in construction tech different? I think it is if what you're comparing it to is what most people would find in what I think of the, as the, the tech Twitterverse, right? Right. So there's a there's a lot of information on Twitter now that's fantastic for entrepreneurs. But it, if you follow that for construction, you'll end up in some dead ends that aren't as productive uh, as they could be for you. And you'll end up depressed. <laughs> like there are things out there that take off much quicker than I mean, especially if you're focused on on consumer as a comparison point. Yeah, it, you know, I think the exciting thing about building a, a construction technology startup now is you get to write the playbook. But if you're going to rely on one, 
you're probably better off dusting off something from, you know, 80s enterprise software versus the tech Twitter today. That's, you know, we, we all know the examples of put up a website and then in a, in a year, you're hopefully a unicorn. This isn't the sector for that. It's not a field of dreams sector. It's a sector in which you have to have a certain level of respect for certain processes and the, and the way that people have done and, and will continue to do business in getting a building safely out of the dirt and you know into the hands of, of owners and occupants. And so, Scott, yeah. Hang on. I, I, before you before you continue that, there's, you said something that I, I want to come back to because and explore a little bit. You had this really great statement. It's not a field of dreams sector. I think there's a there's a lot in that statement. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you mean? Yeah, a reference uh, to to the movie and the tagline that at least those who have seen it would remember. You know, build it, build it, and they will come. It's the concept of. If you're smart enough, if you develop a cool enough piece of technology, then the world will recognize your brilliance and pay you for it. And that's true in some sectors, but it's absolutely not true in construction. You, you really have to have, you can certainly be enthralled by the cool, right? I mean, I, I love new technology, new software, new tools, but you better be more focused on precisely what problem you're solving and for whom. And the workflows. I mean, I, a reason I keyed on that is we do see that folks from outside the sector sometimes come in and th- there, there's a lack of, of kind of depth into how things are really being done in the field. I mean, I think the field is where you see that the most. It's really a, important. It's always important to understand your users. But I think in, in construction, it's even more, it's less obvious. It's less intuitive sometimes from outside the industry. And it's, it's where you see people falling down. Yeah, there's, a, I don't know if this metaphor lands for folks, but I've, I've come to think of the dynamic, the, the sort of mindset here in this sector as, uh, you know, le- leans a bit into math, I suppose, but as, as the respect disrupt ratio, right? In Silicon Valley, everybody talks about disrupting, disrupting everything you want to just, you want to change as much as possible. And certainly that's true uh, to a certain extent, no matter what you're doing, if you're starting a company, but it's it's my belief at least that that respect disrupt ratio better be greater than one because there are certain things that you have to just uh, acknowledge about the sector that if you don't you know you'll you'll end up having a, again a really cool piece of technology that doesn't necessarily get traction. I really like that, and you know the reality is that even even highly disruptive companies still have to respect the fact that f- the laws of physics and the way human beings do what they do. Are what they are. I mean, like everyone has to respect something of the status quo, even if they are disrupting key areas. And your point is that in this sector, that's a bigger deal than it might be somewhere else. I think that's right. And, and it even goes into more mundane, perhaps, things such as the purchasing process that the industry is used to using mm-hmm. and has been, you know, it's been embedded for decades now. You can do things uh, that some people would say are disruptive, but you should also keep in mind the way that relationships have been built and the importance of those over time. And if you don't, you'll end up having a lot of conversations where people will, who are inclined to think about technology will say, boy, that's kind of interesting. And you know, if, if they're really personally interested in it, they'll spend a half an hour with you, but you won't end up getting the sale. And so as we think about that, this, the, the kind of internal adoption 
How have you seen that different from other B2B sales? Well, th- there's, a, there's a couple of pieces to the answer to that question. And certainly one of them is what we've just been talking about, right? This, this sort of respect, disrupt, balance. Right. Another piece, and, and the reason I mentioned the 80s enterprise software versus you know, current tech Twitter playbook is you, you don't, it's very rare in the construction space to be able to go into a big general contractor and win one huge enterprise sale and then just have the next couple of years be about rolling it out you know, to all the different branch offices. The, the sales process, as you know, and as your listeners uh, know, is much more fractured than that in terms of having to win project by project, geography by geography, and even within geographies. You certainly, over time, can build up momentum in a company, but it's unlikely that you're going to be able to parachute into headquarters, convince even you know, in those cases where the GC has a, a full innovation team, which I I think it's fantastic, and it is actually one of the one of the reasons why I think we'll see more adoption of innovation over the next decade. But you're not going to parachute into headquarters, convince the VP that hey, look, you know, isn't this incredible, and then just sit back and watch the orders come in. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And so, how does that ladder up to? the idea of, of a startup in construction tech. You spend time advising. You make up your mind sometimes to, to put you know, personal skin in the game, so to speak. How does that change the way you think about a startup and their trajectory? Yeah, you know, there, there are some people who would say that given some of the na- dynamics we've just talked about, that you, in order to be a successful entrepreneur in this sector, uh, you must come from the sector. I, I think that's a a reasonable rule of thumb, the, the place I would break it is in cases where an individual or a com- couple of entrepreneurs have, for whatever reason, uh, a connection to the space personally that they have uh, a passion for construction or a connection to construction in such a way that they're motivated to to learn, you know, the ways and mores of, of construction, right? To learn why it's different, to learn why perhaps workers in the space have a different approach than in other places. You know, for me, my connection is I have uh, general contractors as uncles, my in-laws are contractors. And a lot of my life, actually, when I was in other sectors, I kept an eye on construction in the built space, but didn't see an opportunity. And and now I think there, there really is one, but it is important to have at least a a passion to really understand, you know, what problem are you solving and who are you solving it for? And I think, you know, back to your disrupt respect ratio, this is another piece to that, right? Is the the humility to listen. Because, you you know, I think what is definitely a a, a danger sometimes is a couple of smart engineers might think they know better. Not that that's ever happened in software, right? I think that that's the danger is that. Well, yeah. I mean, I think we'll see in 10 years if, if, I and, and others who have a similar thesis are right, but I, I think there's an opportunity to build a number of very interesting and, and also valuable for their founders and employees and shareholders, companies in this space over the next decade. But I don't necessarily, I think that when we get to the end of the decade and look back on the companies that have been successful, there will be just as many who describe it how you will. I think, you know, being a good listener, mm-hmm. which, which captures the concept of really being focused on customer. I think there'll be as many that are led by people with with those sets of skills as there are individuals who are just amazing computer programmers. 
for the day. Yeah, or a, a good blend of the two, right? Yep. I mean, it, at, at the end of the day, you definitely need both. And I'll say that we don't even have to look to the future. There's already some, you know, sometimes we're in the middle of it and we, we can forget, but the digitization of construction workflows is is already pretty impressive. And, it you know, there's still literally hundreds of thousands of companies that are primarily Excel-based, but the lots and you know, thousands of them are not. Thousands of them, of them are are adopting BIM or they're digitizing their project management or they're using, you know, scanning and various other things. So I think we're already seeing, and there's, and the money is following, we're already seeing, you know, a fair amount of traction, especially on the higher end of the company scale. Yeah, that's, that's certainly true. And I, I suspect as, uh, let's call it, you know, young Gen X, young half of Gen X, uh, millennials, Gen Y, Gen Z continue to move into the sector and take over a larger and larger portion, both of the workforce and then increasingly of management as well. These are all individuals who have grown up using computers, are arguably most of them mobile native, certainly social media savvy. And so the the old line in this isn't unique to, to construction, but but let's let's call it old school sectors. Well, we do it this way because that's how we've always done it. I don't think that's going to resonate as much over the next decade. It's one of the reasons that I'm bullish on where things can go. Another reason, to your point of folks using Excel, which is a great program, right? And it has a lot of things to argue for it. But I, I think the fact that we have such an interesting collection of cloud-based technology now. And for this example, I'm talking specifically about the back office. We can also talk about the field and, and on site as well. But the fact that there's such a robust develop, development environment in cloud software, I think portends well for adoption totally. um, yeah. of, of some of the different things that you were talking about. And I think you could also you know, safely argue that you know, it, when it was harder to adopt because it was harder to adopt. Maybe that was the kind of thing that wasn't going to work for construction. I give as an example, anyone who went through SAP implementations in the nineties knows that it wasn't the comfortable experiment. Like they, they said, well, no, you've got to enter things this way and you have to do them this way because that's how the system works. And 20 years later, 15 or 25 years later, we're now in a place where everything is abstracted two levels more and you can, you have such flexibility and you can stand up a company that has that is world class in terms of its its stability and the availability of the software. It's not going to go down anywhere. Speaking of of Twitter, you know, it is really a different world where where a smallish company can provide pretty rock solid software early in their cycle, as opposed to you know after they've grown a little bit and and, and pulled in some investment. Yeah, and without without the upfront investment on the customer side, right? Totally. I mean, we, yeah. We're all familiar with the freemium model and that's taken over the software world, but it's particularly powerful. You know, you, you talk a lot about the long tail in construction with the number of firms that are south of 250 employees and then even south of 50 employees, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That world, almost by definition, was not going to adopt a even a million-dollar tech installation 20 years ago, much less some of the bigger ones that you just alluded to, right? But right. but now, if someone comes to them with a relatively light piece of software or heck, even an app, number one, they're, they're used to using those things in their personal lives. And number two, they realize, well, I can, you know, I can give it a shot and see if this works. 
And if it doesn't, then I just cancel the subscription. Right. Well, it's always easier to hire people when you know you can fire them. I mean, that's kind of a basic rule of employment, isn't it? Is yeah. by making it expensive to, to quit, people say, well, then I'm not going to start because then I'm stuck with it. That actually leads to something else. C- coming back to this contact startup thing again. One of the implications of a lot of what we've just said is that early traction is lumpier and slower than it might be in some other sectors. Are you seeing that as you look at different companies and what does that mean to you? Yes, it's it's very rare. I'd be surprised if there will be any examples of companies that, you know, a, a year after they've launched are, are unicorns like you have in other sectors, right? This is, this is a business that, mm-hmm. uh, it, and it goes back to another reason why having some sort of connection and a passion for it is really important, right? Because you, you've got to have a mission mindset that says, I'm doing this. Yes, I'm doing this to, to build an interesting, valuable company. But I also have some other, you know, personal motivation or connection to the space, whether it's to workers in the space, I want to help, you know, make their lives safer or easier, or whether it's, I just, you know, I've always loved building and and i love seeing new structures emerge from nowhere there's got to be some of that right so it can't just be i want to create a unicorn in 12 months right right you should go make another social app but that speaks to the other question i might have wanted to ask and that is when you're thinking about startup teams what do you look for and you used a great word a minute ago which was the mission mindset i never heard that before but it, it i really like it is that one of the key, I mean, obviously that's one of the key ingredients. What else do you think would be key ingredients for a team that's building something in this space? I think it really does come down to both the passion, the mission mindset, but even as much an appreciation for the rules of, of the game in construction technology, right? So an understanding that from the very beginning, it's actually, in some respects, good news that the sector demands discipline on unit economics, right? You, you don't get to walk in and for five years mess around with some software and then, you know, maybe figure out the ROI that you're delivering a few years down the road. You'll be out of business. So you, you have to, right from the very beginning, think about, is there a specific thing that I'm solving for that my tool can do better? Right. And, and it's that third leg in the stool, if you will. But that, that idea that it, do I really have something that based on what I'm trying to sell to the market, does it better than the way they're doing it currently? Because in most cases, sure, there are some cases where you're going to be offering something completely new. Drones, I guess, would fall into that category. But in a lot of other cases, you're almost by definition, the technology that you've built or are building is solving a problem that has been solved before. Maybe not great, but it's been solved enough. Right. So the way that whatever you're bringing to the party, better, it it has to be better. I think there's something really powerful in what you just got to and this unit economics idea. And we talk about, you know, how it's a project-based industry and that slows things down and so on. And there's obviously merit in that. And I think some of the merit is you don't have a lot of time to prove out that it works, they have a distinct P&L that they can point to. Like it doesn't get lost in the wash. It's this is the project's P&L. We used it for this project. And they, they can much more cleanly see whether it had an impact than might have been true for a bigger enterprise. Is that some of what you meant by unit economics? Yeah, 
I think that's part of it. I think that certainly understanding, again, we're, we're talking about a construction in a broad, with broad brushstrokes here, but figuring out who the customers are that you want to sell to and whether the way that they're doing business right now has, an, has enough inefficiency that you can step in with your solution and it'll be maybe not an easy decision, but it can't be uh, a, a nail biter decision. Right, where you say, boy, if you just spend uh, $100,000 on X, Y, or Z, you'll get an ROI of, mm -hmm. of 9% mm -hmm. relative to what you could get somewhere else. That's obviously not going to work. Right. So as you think about the industry and what you've seen, where do you think there's some opportunities? Well, I think there's opportunity across the value chain. And I'll mention some, some potentials, but I would say that in all cases, it, it really comes back to not necessarily the technology underlying it, but what problem it is that's being solved. I've been fortunate to make a, a couple of investments in companies sitting at the confluence of, of Contech and FinTech, for example, companies that are streamlining the payments and PO purchase order process. There's, I think, a lot of work uh, to be done at the intersection of construction tech and risk management insurance, safety, certainly supply chain. You had I, you had a guest on a, a few episodes back who's working on, I, I think, some, some interesting potential products in, in the legal world, right? That's back office. That's right. And there are, there are a number of others also. When, when people talk about contact, often what's described is robotics or drones or offsite and prefab. And that's there's some really interesting stuff that's happening in those sectors, but I think there's also an opportunity in, in what many might think of as just more mundane, improving processes that haven't been touched for, for a while. And by the way, one other, one other area that doesn't necessarily have a direct connection between the two, but I think it's worth mentioning, and that's sustainability. There, there are a couple of threats, one being, as we know, the price of lumber has uh, skyrocketed uh, over the past couple of years, and people are really starting to think about how can we put up structures in such a way that they're ultimately more sustainable for the planet. And then certainly with mm -hmm. the contribution, negative contribution, I guess you'd say, that the built world has on, on sustainability and, and energy management. It's something that increasingly the sector, both construction and just more prop tech and smart buildings is going to have to wrestle with over the next decade. No, it's inevitable. And we're just seeing, I mean, I spend a lot of time with, with CSI, obviously, and, and standards. And you're seeing a lot of talk about how do we make it easier for people to understand aspects of what they specify or what they use to build that they didn't have to worry about before, whether it's the health content because certain chemicals are used or the carbon content and methane, actually, in some cases. You're right. It's, it's, we're just getting started, and it's, it's a big, complex problem. I, well, I was just going to say in terms of just getting started, I'm a believer that we're only in the second inning here of what's, what's possible. We, we've seen over the past couple of years in particular a number of things coming together, whether it's you know companies like Procore that are filed to go public, which will inevitably kick off individuals who have been there for a while and are excited about running their own thing. There are a handful of startups that have been successful already. There are uh, venture firms that both 
here in the U.S. as well as in Europe. There, there are three or four in Europe that are actually even bigger in terms of capital under management than the U.S., but focus specifically on the built world. And so I think it's, it's an exciting time. I mean, I, we'll, we'll see. All of us who are spending time in this space, we'll see if we're, we were right in a decade. But there's a heck of a lot of work on some really interesting problems to be solved. And, and to kind of bring that one home, you know, you think about where the world was in a really easily, easy, easily understood metaphor, where the world was with the BlackBerry. And then what happened when we got used to an iPhone, then apps, then, you know, on and on and on. And you look at how we interact with so many parts of our lives based on that, that simple transition from the thing you carry around only really being good at voice and text to being a supercomputer that now, you know, you carry around with you. And you think about that transition, and it took a little bit more than a decade from where we are to, to, well, you know, 07 to 17 is not a bad use of a decade. You can imagine where that sort of follow-on and progression of this, that this made that possible, made that possible, made that possible. And now we're somewhere totally different from where we thought we were going to be. Yeah. And when you mentioned BlackBerry, relative to your, your, the earlier uh, topic we were touching on with the big up, upfront installations, as a consumer, very few consumers had their own BlackBerry, right? Black, mm-hmm. A lot of people had Blackberries, but it was all through their office, their company, because there was such a significant commitment that you had to make in terms of infrastructure and, and ongoing support. And now, yes, it's a dr- dramatically better platform, the iPhone or smartphones in general, but it's also really easy to use, which is another important feature that you have to have to win in this space. But because it's easy to use, everyone's used to using it at home, in their personal lives. And then, of course, while none of us would have chosen what happened in the last year, the pandemic's had the impact of, I think, everyone's had the experience of basically being able to do their job more or less. And, and I'm not talking about, obviously, you know, actually putting buildings up, but in terms of a lot of the things that enable that process. Mm-hmm. We've done that from home or not connected to a corporate server. And I think that is why I'm going to invite you back, is to talk about consumerization and the effects of, of, of you know, some of the more recent events. But for now, I want to say thanks for being on the podcast. This was a great conversation. Thank you, Hugh. And thanks again for everything that uh, you've done and, and are continuing to do in this space. Exciting time. And I look forward to, as we get back to maybe the opportunity to get together in person, even connecting with others in your listening audience, because there's a lot to talk about here and we're just scratching the surface. I agree. Thanks, Scott.